Welcome to the Tech Humanist Show, a multimedia format program exploring how data and technology shape the human experience. I'm your host, Kate O'Neill. This week, Anna Milicevic is an entrepreneur, media executive, and digital technology innovator. She is the co-founder and principal of Sparrow Advisors, a strategic consultancy helping marketers and C-suite executives navigate the data-driven ad tech and martech waters. A pioneer of digital data management and advertising, Anna was responsible for the development of the Demdex platform, now Adobe Audience Manager, from its early days through its successful acquisition and integration into the Adobe Digital Marketing Suite. Prior to starting Sparrow, she established Signal's Global Strategic Consultancy Group and helped Fortune 500 customers adopt advanced and predictive analytics across their marketing, ad ops, and digital content business units at SAS. Her consulting portfolio includes working for the United Nations, executing initiatives in 50-plus countries, and advising companies on go-to-market strategies all around the globe. Anna is frequently quoted by media powerhouses like The Wall Street Journal and Business Insider, who in 2018 named her as one of 23 industry leaders working on fixing advertising, as well as industry trades like Adweek, AdAge, Digiday, Marketing Magazine, AdExchanger, and ExchangeWire. She is a sought-after speaker on topics of ad tech, martech, innovation, customer experience, data management, and new frontiers of technology. One program note, we had lots of internet connectivity issues during this episode. We've cleaned up as much of it as we can. There's still a lot of brilliance in here, so hang in and enjoy. Anna, you are live on the Tech Humanist Show. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure to be a guest here. Well, hey, so, you know, we've got a lot of stuff that to, to dig into because I actually went through and to prepare some notes for today, I had gone through your newsletter that you write weekly, right? Uh, yes, it's it's mo mostly weekly. Mostly so far weekly. since we, we started it, it's been. Oh no, we're frozen again. I'll keep. I'll uh, just keep saying what what Anna's saying here, which is that it's a weekly connection. Or sorry, weekly <laughs> newsletter called Sparrow One. Everybody should subscribe to it because if uh, if you don't get a chance to hear Anna's brilliance without this many interruptions, then you deserve to treat yourself to the uninterrupted genius of Anna here. <laughs> Georgia O'Neill, which is my mom, hi mom, says technology is not always helpful. You know, it's kind of funny. In a way, that's a little bit the underlying theme of the show. <laughs> we, we want technology to be helpful. We want it to be helpful to humans and to help us connect with each other and have meaningful experiences. But what it's really, I think what the, the most helpful thing that's happening with technology is that it's forcing us to be very clever. <laughs> Because right now we just lost Anna completely. This is episode 13 of this show. So this is kind of a bad omen, probably. <laughs> well, let me tell you a little bit about Anna's work. Well, I'm sure she's trying desperately and, you know, sweating it out, trying to get back on the show. Let me tell you a little bit about what she's doing with this Sparrow One newsletter that I was starting to tell you about. She's been covering... A lot of topics related to how data informs ad models, advertising. And one quote from one of her newsletters was, we've previously explored how today's big tech should really be thought of as big advertising since today's platforms owe significant portions of their revenue to advertising. So it's a really interesting observation, like the, the idea that what we think of as big tech functionally 
is really uh, all about advertising and it should be approached that way. Hey, here she comes. Well, that you. was fun. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everybody. I'm back. Who knows for how long? <laughs> it's okay. I was just telling everybody while you were away, Anna, that this is episode 13. So I'm wondering if we've run into... Ah. The gremlins are hitting us with superstition now. Indeed, indeed. All right. Oh, that, ex that explains everything. I'm not worried. Now. Yeah, yeah. My mom says, yay. <laughs> Hi. Uh, I want to go ahead and, and move into um, some of the discussion so we can actually get some of your genius captured here. I, you know, one question I had for you almost like right away is there's this this old chestnut, uh, by the way, I was talking about while you were gone about the whole big tech should be thought of as big advertising. Uh, observation that you made in one of your newsletters. Mm -hmm. And it feels to me like one of the other really commonly cited cliches is that uh, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. And that feels like it's been around as an observation for at least a decade, maybe even longer, but that it's not a very contemporary observation about the relationship between humans and data and technology feels like things have gotten more complicated in the decade since that became popular. So I wondered if you see that that way as well, and if you have a, a new mental framework, an updated mental framework that we can replace that with. I think that, you know, for the better part of certainly the last decade, but really the last two decades since we've had digital advertising and the internet that's been becoming an ever-increasing part of our lives, we've kind of answered every question on, well, how am I going to monetize you know, fill in the blank, whatever service, product, whatever this is that we're talking about, the answer that came to mind always was, well, we'll just, you know, run some advertising against it or we'll monetize through ads. And so we've been kind of postponing this decision on what should monetization look like in a mature internet as opposed to an emerging internet. And, you know, the that's kind of what, what we're hitting now is, is that wall of continuously bad decisions and postponing the decision of what monetization should look like. And I think for the consumer, this is certainly coalescing now as a challenge where we're being asked to directly support some content creators whose content we're used to consuming for free. So this is every journalism conversation that we have today ties back to this. And, you know, it, it's a really silly conversation to have when we used to consume journalism through print journalism. Nobody thought twice about paying for a single issue of a newspaper. But right, right now, if you ask somebody, you know, hey, I want four dollars for you to be able to read all of this amazing reporting today. That seems like, uh, you know, folks will balk at that mm -hmm. and go like, oh, that's too much about that. <laughs> So there's a mismatch between where we are with monetization, which is still, to your point, very advertising oriented, the perception of value on the, the user end of, of this advertising supported ecosystem. And then we're just starting to nip at the bud of what some future monetization models may look like. But n we haven't really settled or, on one or several that will look like they're taking off. So we're in that exciting in between where anything's possible, but at the same time, nothing seems to work anymore, at least the it's really fluctuating space. So I don't yeah. know that there is a good mental model to transition to other than as consumers, we really need to be more aware 
of the trade-offs we're making daily. And this is where awareness at all. Yeah, you know, it, so one of the phrases I use frequently in my work is um, analytics are people. And it seems like, you know, mm -hmm. what I'm trying to get across there is that the so much of the data-driven landscape of decision-making is based on the data trail that's generated from human behavior and human preferences and, you know, all of the human communications and relationships as they transact in online and increasingly in offline spaces too. And, uh, you know, one, one of the things that I wonder about when you're talking about this, the shift or the, the growing awareness that what has been happening with the internet of the last 20 years is an increasing reliance on ad-based models. And that is happening in parallel with the diminishing consumer expectation that they have to pay for uh, subscriptions or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, the lack of viability, it seems, in many other monetization models. So what are some of the ways that we can think about some of the emerging opportunities there? Like, what are some of the monetization models that we might experiment with? Of course, subscriptions are one that comes to mind and, you know, freemium sorts of models and things like that. What are you seeing that, that seems innovative and exciting that, that anyone's out there playing with or trying to get some consumer awareness of? I think one of the areas that I'm personally really excited about is premium VOD. So we have the, the pandemic to thank for a pretty big shift in how we consume entertainment and really predominantly premium entertainment. So we largely don't have live concerts anymore. We're definitely not going to movie theaters, but still there's a slate of really you know content that needs to be still monetized that way. And so I, you know, I look at releases like Universal's Trolls or now the ever postponing slate of really exciting movies that I'm sure a lot of us would pay a lot of money to be able to see this year, like the James Bond film, uh, Christopher Nolan's Tenant, another, you know, really high, high ticket item that has a lot of built in fans already. But at the same time, the, the studios that are running them just don't have the agility to be able to shift into this more on-demand, direct-to-consumer entertainment universe. So I, I'm fascinated by the impact that the past six, seven, eight months are, are going to have long-term on sports, entertainment, esports, and these emerging ways of, of how we spend our time. Because as with most things, the trends that would have taken five to 10 years to play out are now actually being condensed in 18 months to three years. And, and it's just like you know, being able to, to witness almost a, a big bang of sorts uh, in, in changes. And so I'm super excited about that. Yeah, and one of the other examples seems like it's, uh, and you wrote about it, is, is Hamilton being released on Disney+. Plus. And so that mm -hmm. whole uh, enthusiasm that that generated around a, a relatively new streaming platform and, you know, kind of garnering the opportunity for, for people to explore the, the catalog that they had, which I didn't know until we had access to Disney Plus that they had National Geographic and they had Marvel and so all these other things had somehow escaped my notice. So. There's a really interesting lesson there, I think, about, you know, kind of the exposing the opportunity to consumers and making sure that there's choice and that there's mm -hmm. uh, breadth of opportunity. What, what do you see happening there that, that's in parallel? I guess I want to add into that, that question, too. This is all happening, as you say, at a time through the pandemic where we're also seeing this tremendous growth in e-commerce and 
the downtick in the closures of brick and mortar and, and things like that. So there's just so much upheaval. Yeah, like what we see a lot of traditional companies, whether they're traditional brands or traditional entities. Yeah, so you were saying about uh, Hamilton and what I liked about that approach was that Disney uniquely understood that to be relevant in this direct-to-consumer world, you also have to approach awareness and consumer acquisition differently. And, you know, in a world of uh, content abundance where there is so much good content out there, it's usually not about a single piece of content that will drive somebody to subscribe, but you can use it the, the way Disney has used Hamilton to really, to your point, let folks experience and kind of talk, talk themselves into continuing to, to pay for the service and, and really exposing the, the, the value of the service. And this is the, the number one mistake we see a lot of traditional companies make and not really understand how to pitch to a digital first, mobile first consumer or a direct subscriber. Uh, they're just not wired to do it that way. And it, oftentimes the technology stacks that they have in place just aren't the types of tools that can facilitate this type of direct interaction as well. So they're stuck in this very strange limbo where they are committed to continuing to acquire customers in traditional ways, but that's just not how you would go about acquiring a, a direct customer that you, you now want to go and acquire. Yeah, and, and your point about the, the difference between, you know, acquisition and retention, you know, these are, are concepts that are, are completely familiar to any marketer, but I think the more that you think about how that plays out in an increasingly humanistic way, like making sure that we're thinking uh, holistically about human experience as opposed to manipulatively, because I think as we'll get further into the discussion about the conversation that would have happened 20 years ago when I was at Netflix about retention and using customer data to you know, offer sweeter deals and keep people around is a potentially very different conversation than what could happen now, 20 years later yeah. with, not necessarily with Netflix, although with Netflix, with any company and the, the level of granularity of data that's available, the level of you know, connected insights that can come from, from different data sources. So it becomes a very different kind of conversation and it's, it's one that leads, I think, into, into the larger conversation of, of privacy. And, and you've written about privacy quite a few times. You've said we're having the wrong conversation about privacy. What do you mean by that? There you uh, go. Okay. <laughs> when you it means something nice to have. Like I, I hear privacy and it's you know fluffy and great, but ultimately not something that is a must have. And that's my ongoing frustration with uh, privacy related conversations because I like to think of it in terms of data usage rights rather than privacy. Because I, as a consumer and the creator of this data stream that everybody but me, the data-driven ecosystem, is actually able to monetize, I want to have more control over what is being done with my data. And I certainly want more transparency. And when we couch it in the language of privacy, that usually tends to be interpreted in a very binary way. It's like, you know, oh, leave me alone. I don't want to be tracked. And that's not where most consumers are. Most consumers understand that companies want to market to them. But then, you know, why isn't someone like Target giving you $20 to go and try out a service or something like that? They certainly have the budgets for that. Maybe there's a shortcut way that we can 
bring consumers closer to companies that want to talk to them. And we don't have to do this big rigmarole and, and track and, you know, infer and whatnot. And that's really what's missing now. We have the technology that would make that happen, but the business processes and the thinking hasn't really caught up. And I cringe at privacy restrictions being imposed in, in this ecosystem without actually having the conversation around value and who is the creator of these ultimately very valuable data sets and, and who is actually seeing any value extracted from them. Because right now consumers are seeing very, very little value from the very exhaustive data sets that they're generating. Yeah, that seems like it requires there be an awful lot more education and sophistication uh, in the consumer space, but also even just among practitioners, uh, thinking about the, the broad applications that some of these data sets can have. So you had a great example in um, one of your newsletters about if you just look at your um, your Google interests settings and you, you went through and did kind of an inventory of like, some of yours were like Microsoft PowerPoint, like, yeah, okay, but yeah. fair play, right? <laughs> yeah, um, I, I guess that's an interest, sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. You had um, Portugal national football team? Yes, I have no idea. I, I, I literally could not figure out how that made its way there. But knitting, you said, made sense. You do, you do yes. knit. Okay. I, I did, yeah. So that, that's, that's the one that was like, oh, okay, this is kind of maybe me, but, yeah. but I could not Sherlock Holmes my way back from the, the Portuguese national football team. I, you know, I, I keep racking my brain around like how, what, what, what was I searching for that could have triggered that kind of conjecture? And obviously that's a really ludicrously silly example, but these kinds of assumptions are being made with much more relevant data sets. So let's say I search, I hear about a chronic condition somehow, or maybe through, you know, somebody has it in my vicinity and I Google it and I can very easily be classified unbeknownst to me mm -hmm. in some sort of segment, they're likely to suffer from this disease. And then what happens when a health insurer purchases an alternative data set and uses that to, you know, determine price of my coverage or a life insurer uses it to deny me life insurance, even though this could be a completely inaccurate data set the power of propagation can completely ignore the fact that it, it's not, it, its source isn't true. And so things like that literally keep me up at night. And, and this, again, going back to the privacy conversation, this is at the crux of it. It's, it's not, oh, privacy. It's if you're using these kinds of data sets, then you have to give people the direct ability to control what's being used for all sorts of various inferences about their lives. So what kind of control does that look like? Or how, you know, what kinds of interfaces or, or control sets could we expect or could we imagine that consumers might have? So I think I'm going to invite the ire of the internet now if I say, well, this is one possible application of blockchain here. But so please, <laughs> you know, don't everybody laugh at once. It is actually a, a little... But I, I do I do see a, a, almost like a marketplace where you know different companies are saying, hey, we want to target you or we want this particular data set about you, and that you as a consumer can say yes, yes, no. I you know I never want to hear from you people again ever. Don't ever like mail me or email me or anything. Like I don't exist for for you. 
Uh, and obviously, it's it's easy to imagine something like that, and it's I think it's easy to understand the potential utility of it. It's very practical. We, we want to see in market, but it, it's near impossible to, to build it now with the data infrastructure that we have. Yeah, that, that was amazing that you said that and then your, your video had uh, frozen up. So it was like you were your mouth was perfectly still, but we could still hear. Oh, no. your words. Uh, we're going to try to make it as as useful and entertaining a conversation as, <laughs> as we can for those of you who are hanging in. Uh, I want to know. Uh, you start. Know, texting you if it's yeah yeah maybe just text me your answers and i'll just put them i'll put them up um you know i've been uh, noticing that you have been following the whole the TikTok uh, song and dance is what i would call it um so first of all what do you make of the data and privacy issues that that are related to chinese ownership of an app used so widely by american and international audiences and and, and what it, what does that even say about you know kind of the expectations that uh, of, of who's going to own platforms and that, that people are going to be using. I think that whole story is particularly interesting because it's really the first time that we are seeing the internet that originated in Silicon Valley mostly and the internet that originates in China interacting with one another. You know, for me, it goes back to uh, we need to have scrutiny over what any app does with our data. And so it can't just be, oh, you, TikTok, you are somehow foreign owned and, you know, you are inherently evil. And I think, you know, I remember the conversations that you initiated around all of those apps that were comparing like faces and like aging faces and stuff like that, many of which were not housed in the US. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, asking where does what happens to this data set, especially if it's a potentially biometric data set, is really, really important. But as we saw with TikTok, it can't just be in the interest of freaking everybody out. And, you know, mentioning things like national security without really the context around it, because even if you're making a valid point, you're just it, it just sounds stupid to try to make that argument without actually expanding it to include all data operations. So that was my most of my reactions around that whole spectacular mess were around, oh, this is a great opportunity to talk about data rights usage. Let's talk about that. And instead, it, it just kind of you know, spiraled into this very, very strange scenario and much ado about nothing in the end. So, yeah. It's, you know, kind of feels like it's a very contemporary uh, story that, you know, we, we always <laughs> see things become reduced to their least sophisticated talking points and then yeah. it just gets hammered in these kind of ideological arguments and, and vacuums. But, you know, I, I wonder, what, what are you thinking now about, you know, the American potential investment or a holding of the app? Like, mm -hmm. I, I, I know you had included a chart that um, showed this complicated ownership structure mm -hmm. that some uh, journalist had, had included in his tweet. And that it lives on actually on the ByteDance site, I believe. It very explicitly and transparently explains the hierarchy of these uh, holding companies and the, yeah. the limitation of the, the U.S. component of, of the, the TikTok discussion. So are we even talking about anything of significance anyway? <laughs> no, no, not at all. And that's that's the thing. It, it's a missed opportunity and, you know, a lot of hullabaloo over essentially nothing. Uh, you know, we don't 
get words uh, uh, like national security involved in, in regular discussions around like who owns cloud infrastructure here or there. And so it's once again, we're, we're supposedly having a conversation, but we're not having the conversation that we should be having. And so, you know, pick any topic from digital world. And, and I think that generalization will apply. And I, I really mostly see it as a missed opportunity to clarify and educate consumers who are, uh, you know, not thinking twice about installing something on their phones. Uh, about what can potentially happen from from that point on, and you know what the 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 data exhaust that they're generating just by using their their device actually looks like. I think that's something that's that's incredibly important from a, just a technological literacy perspective. Yeah, I agree. I think that's the the three pronged discussion that I inevitably have when, when this kind of subject comes up is that you know there's a there's a corporate responsibility piece, there's a government responsibility piece, and there's an individual responsibility piece. And that piece, I think, is the easiest to overlook. But each of each of us, all people, need to be becoming more savvy and sophisticated all the time about the, the data footprint that we leave and the way that we engage with, with different systems. Uh, so so mm -hmm. we've got that. Like We know that that needs to happen. What do you think needs to happen on the government responsibility side? Let's segue a little bit into regulations. What do you see as a, a, mm -hmm. a missed opportunity or, or an opportunity in the area of, of regulations around, around personal data? First of all, I love that three-pronged approach because I, I would venture to say that uh, really the only companies that seem to be uh, operating where they should be right now are uh, that is the corporate prong, and that's inherently because whoever owns the most data in a big data environment has a really, really big moat over others. Um, so this is where, you know, the, the big tech conversation really becomes uh, particularly impactful. And you can see the, the advantage that somebody like a Google has uh, with, you know, uh, every, uh, really understanding where everybody is and what they're doing at any time of day, essentially. Uh, I, I think when I look at regulation, again, especially here in the U.S., I, I see a lot of reactiveness and a lot of, uh, you know, skating way behind the puck, to borrow from Wayne Gretzky, uh, and, you know, solving problems from several years ago. And the, the rate of advantage of big data agglomeration and aggressive acquisitions and uh, uh, you know that, that big tech is adopting as a growth strategy, it just doesn't leave room for you to even be you know six months behind, let alone you know three to five years. And so I, I unless we have this type of uh, data consumer data protection environment, um, I look at things like GDPR as an inspiration and, and a way to adopt something that can be significantly improved upon in actual implementation, but like a good first step. Unless we have that layer that's really consumer friendly, we're always, always, always going to be way behind big tech on this. So it's no longer a a, a tri-pronged approach, you have, you know, uh, one prong that's very strong and then two that are kind of not, not, not really doing very well and that, you know, that does not look very balanced. Um, and I hope that that is going to change as we get more 
uh, regulators and legislators who are uh, more attuned to the tech landscape in general and are more tech savvy. I, I don't think we can afford more regulators who are, you know, endlessly fascinated by how search works in the year 2020. Uh, that that's just not not acceptable. And so we we need to to level up uh, on that front. When I say we, I largely mean the U.S. Uh, but this will stand for, for most other uh, countries, although amongst the OECD group, we are doing quite badly um, uh, when it comes to this, this type of maturity in, in regulation and, and really consumer protection. Yeah, and the, the uh, opportunity seems like there are so many other uh, kinds of entities that are proposing their own or coming up with their own types of regulations like um, the Amsterdam algorithmic uh, index or whatever they're calling it, the, the mm -hmm. uh, register of algorithms in Amsterdam. Uh, or is it Amsterdam or is it in the, in the Netherlands as a whole? I can't recall. I don't know if you remember. Um, but that seems mm -hmm. like, you know, you, you, there's this opportunity to have algorithmic transparency and make mm -hmm. seemingly black box algorithms more approachable uh, to everyone and create accountability. Like, uh, what, what, what opportunities do you think exist around around that space right now? I think we, we talk about algorithms so much, but we talk about them uh, as if there's some like magical entity and like mystical power that mm -hmm. does something and whatnot. And it's not. It's we human programmers put in inputs and put in constraints and reflect their perspective in the world. And then machine language uh, interprets that and, and channels that back to us. And I just want everybody who has said that something along the lines of, well, the algorithm does this, is just to replace that with, you know, the people who programmed this algorithm have done so and so. Because I think it, it, it really removes responsibility from us as authors of these technology solutions. And, you know, technology is, is still very homogenous. Mm -hmm. uh, the people who get to build it overwhelmingly across the world look a certain way and, and come from a certain background and, and think very similarly to one another. And unless we can figure out how to democratize this so that everyone is truly involved, we're always going to have an inherent bias reflected in the algorithms, even if the, the uh, authors of software have the most noble intentions ever. It's, it's just by design, that's how this works. Uh, so I'm, I'm particularly excited about uh, things like the no-code movement and really removing the level of knowledge one needs to have to even play in the arena of developing and, and, uh, and, and having a stake in technology. And I think that that's going to be the next uh, w where I get excited about the interaction and intersection of humanity and technology. It's, it's around things like that. Like I want to 
have my my you know my four-year-old niece should be able to program a bunch of stuff by drawing or you know using the tools that she normally has I, I don't want to live in a world where she needs to learn eight specific languages and you know go to school for 20 years to be able to like interact with a machine like that you know I I can say that because that was my path I, I have a computer science and math degree I've done all of that and I don't want that I don't think we we have to live in that kind of world we can unlock a, a, a much much better more equitable world for everyone and that's that's what I'd really like to see as the the next phase here that's beautiful I don't, I was going to say, I don't know if that actually answered your question. Oh, well, it, I think it's a, a great answer, uh, whether it answered that specific question or not. I want to know what, uh, so that, that feels like a very optimistic view of, you know, what, what can happen. I want to know what else you are optimistic about when it comes to how technology can can shape human experiences or what, what we can do with, with data and emerging technology to improve the meaningful experiences of, of, uh, of humans in the future. Yeah, I want to say this has been a, a very trying year for optimism, especially technological optimism, because, you know, we, we, we readily see that there are solutions available that we're just not using or not using well. Um, I'm greatly energized by uh, not having this Silicon Valley, um, Silicon Valley be the only place in the world where we innovate something in technology anymore. I think that there are so many interesting initiatives and, and the cost of participation has kind of lowered itself significantly that, you know, now kids in the most remote areas of the world can start building cool stuff on their mobile phones, can start building businesses just by using chat apps and similar. And, and that's just been really, really wonderful to see. I, I think we here in in the West and OECD countries can learn a lot from these new approaches and, and really new creativity bubbling up. Uh, so I, I tend to think a lot about how can we elevate really cool creative projects that aren't originating here? How can we find vehicles to fund them and to support them commercially? And, you know, I, I like to think that in uh, 10 years time, just looking at how much things have changed, never mind the world, but in like the New York tech ecosystem mm -hmm. in a decade, and then extrapolating that to the entire world, like that's genuinely exciting to me. And I, I think the more we're... Um, innovating now the closer we are to like bleeding edge between different spaces so if you're if you're good with data analysis you can do that in uh you know you can apply that to biotech and you can apply mm -hmm. it to climate change and you can apply it to logistics and you can apply it across many different dimensions so i think we're we're at the cusp of going from that very specialized look at our careers and, and our individual focus on, on a very like factory driven kind of way. Like, oh, I work on this particular mm -hmm. part and I'm very good at this, but I don't know anything about any other parts of the card that I'm putting together to a much more uh, renaissance approach mm -hmm. to knowledge where you'll have, you know, the, the kind of the building blocks and the critical 
uh, knowledge that that you'll need to command, whether that's high math literacy, analytical skills, ability to process a lot of data and, and extract value from it, similar, that can be applied across many, many different things. And every time in the history of humanity, when we've had that kind of blending event, something magical has come out on the other end. So, so that's my, <laughs> that's where I couch my optimism now is that I think we're in, in that kind of acceleration phase and that that could be really, really wonderful in the next decade. Yeah, that's a great way to think of it. I do have a question from the audience. Uh, Shana Karp asks a question, does the math background of a lot of algorithms create problems around abstracting into no code? It shouldn't. Uh, we shouldn't be creating barriers. We should be finding ways to explain complex math to people who don't speak complex math. And so you mentioned knitting. This has been one of the big revelations for me in, in the last couple of years and one of the reasons why I picked this up as a hobby. So, you know, I, my, my grandmother um, was a great crafter and she many, many years ago tried to teach me how to knit and I was like, you know, this is not interesting, whatever. Um, until uh, uh, literally last year when I looked at a knitting pattern and I just had this revelation that, oh my God, this is code. Because it is code, it's exactly that. It, it's an abstraction, you need to visualize and then you need to make and translate what, what you're seeing on a piece of paper or in screen or something like that. And I thought, you know, some of the first programmers, the, the computers were women for an obvious reason, because we had the skill set based on generations of crafting and telling stories in this level of abstraction. So somewhere between that first step and the world we live in today, somebody inserted this, oh no, it's all math thing mm -hmm. in between and didn't look at disciplines like crafting and knitting and didn't have the skills to look at that and go, well, wait a minute, this is exactly what I'm looking for. So we had a, a completely different set of mental models shifted and, and put on top of this world. It doesn't have to be that way. So I think as mathematicians now, there is you know, mathematical research and, and furthering that, but I think we have a lot of opportunity to really demystify and think about math as you know lego building blocks mm -hmm. and create that universe so that more and more people don't have to use that pathetic excuse of no oh, i'm not good at math i don't know how to do this because of the you know the, the way they were thought didn't resonate in in their brains and it's not just math i think it's every discipline especially in in science or in stem fields can be interpreted in a much, much more user-friendly way. And that that's, we as, as professionals and leaders should be focusing on that. Yeah, and uh, Shana, sorry Shana that I didn't pronounce your name correctly. It's right there in your in your username, you spelled it out. It's Shana, <laughs> <laughs> I said it wrong, sorry. I said, I wish someone had said this to me in high school. And I think that is the, the sort of tragedy of how we've taken technology and computing and programming and made it such a, uh, a remote discipline, made it feel so hard to get to that you have to go through so many hoops of math and, and code and logic and all these different things, which are all very valuable to know, <laughs> but they aren't necessarily what 
we need in in uh, trying to make the the democratized movement right like we we need people to be able to think about technology fundamentals in ways that they can actually uh, bring holistic and integrative approaches to and that's not going to happen if people are thinking of it as some far off distant thing that they can never reach because they aren't good at 10 things that aren't necessarily aren't necessary to it. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. And look, I, you know, I'm a terrible guitar player, seriously, mm -hmm. awful, but I still play because there's enjoyment in playing and there's enjoyment in knowing enough that you can get something back from it. And, yeah. and I wish we had a very easy way to do that across other disciplines, especially intellectual disciplines, especially STEM disciplines. Uh, and, and I think that's a that's a worthy goal for the next generation of technology and also why, you know, I love stuff like no code and, and, and those kinds of movements, because it removes that impulse to be a gatekeeper and to kind of go, oh, but I went to, you know, high school and college and graduate school and I've learned all this stuff and now you must suffer, too. I'm like, no, that's the, the wrong impulse here. Yeah. Uh I, I also want to um, I want to use this this sort of wrapping up moment of your you've already got yourself into this optimistic headspace. But I want to <laughs> I want to ask you you know as I think about how we think about the um, the opportunity to build better futures with tech and how we can stand a better chance in culture uh, in maybe in the corporate world in the advertising world or wherever whatever scope you think is most appropriate for this question like what do you think we could do to stand a better chance of creating or bringing about the best futures with tech rather than the worst futures and you've already spoken to no code and you know maybe some reforms yeah. to education around technology but what else what what kind of seems like it's going to make the biggest difference in terms of affecting people's lives Honestly, I, I think there has to be some type of, uh, whether economic incentive or, or uh, similar, to you know incentivize the development of good technologies because nefarious technologies are very easy to monetize. Mm -hmm. And by nefarious, you know, I do mean like literally, you know, Doctor Evil and James Bond villains kind of thing, but. When you think about how much of the development of modern day technology is tied back to military investment and similar, like, is there a way that we can funnel those same investments and money, but have a different goal in mind for society? And I'm, I'm greatly encouraged by the approach that New Zealand has taken here, where they've, you know, identified not just the pursuit of increasing their their GDP as a goal, but really measuring and quantifying and holding themselves accountable for improving society and mm -hmm. citizens' satisfaction with the society that they live in. And that's a really, really powerful concept that I think extends beyond just technology. Mm -hmm. the, I think technology can't operate in a vacuum. It always has to have some connection to the, the people it's serving and the, the use cases that it's feeding. And, you know, it's just, it's the tragedy of our day is that it's easier and possibly commercially more advantageous to just, you know, develop crap. Yeah. I don't have strong opinions about this. <laughs> uh, but so, there, so economic incentives for mm -hmm. alignment 
right? It sounds like what you're saying is um, the best opportunity. And I see something like this in my work too, that we need to find ways to align business incentives with human outcomes. And yes. the more we can do that, the better chance we're going to have at scaling, you know, great technology as well as great other business driven experiences. So that that's a, a great thought to, to close with. Hey, um, thank you so much for persisting with me through all of the internet connective and thank you to our audience for persisting with us through all of the connection issues. Uh, while we've got you still here, how can people find and follow you and your work online? Uh, so I'm the principal and co-founder of uh, Sparrow Advisors. We're a management consultancy that helps uh, brands, technology companies, investors, and really everybody in the general digital space work better with one another and, and create commercial advantages out of some of these newer technologies. So sparrowadvisors.com is our home on the internet. We have the weekly strategy newsletter that I, you know, I'm slightly biased, but I think it's a fascinating read because it's, good. <laughs> it's, it's one, really good. <laughs> it's one of those things that if we weren't developing it, I wish somebody else was doing it so that I could read it. So you can also find a link to subscribe to that on our website. And then I tweet a lot and you can find me as AEXM on Twitter. That's my playground for testing a lot of these larger topics and ideas is there. And yeah, it's, you know, fun. That's, it is that's fun. Me. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks to everyone out there. And thank you, Anna, for being here. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Tech Humanist Show. You can find more information about the show's guests and links to their projects at thetechhumanist.com, where you can also find more episodes. Or you can subscribe at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kate O'Neill. Join me next time for more about how data and technology shape the human experience.